All right, well, here we are, Bibles ready, hearts open, Galatians chapter 5, verse by verse, line on line. And we're almost done with the book, if you notice. We'll finish chapter 5 tonight, then we have one chapter left, and we're done with Galatians. It was a few years back that I was asked to go to Africa with Franklin Graham, and I said yes, but we were flying into a very volatile area at the time in Mogadishu, Somalia. At that time, we had a military presence in Mogadishu. It was a war. In fact, the whole concept of Black Hawk Down took place uh, a week, within a week of my going to Mogadishu. That's when our helicopter went down. Well, I uh, landed, first of all, got on the airplane, which is a United Nations aircraft. Nobody else would fly there. It wasn't like normal seats. It was seats on the side of the hull of the aircraft that were metal. The only ones going in were soldiers, UN representatives, news people, and us. And usually as you land, people uh, say, have a nice time. If this is your final destination. But they just said, ladies and gentlemen, good luck. And as we got off of the airplane, the good luck became worse as I saw the Italians bringing in several caskets, loading them on Italian aircraft to bring them back to Italy for burial. And I'm thinking, now wait a minute, I am coming here to stay for a few days, and I hear good luck on a UN aircraft, I see people being carted away in caskets, and I looked at Franklin and I go, now why are we here again? <laughs> and uh, of course it was for um, humanitarian aid we were bringing supplies in. It was surreal as we climbed in the back of this old Land Rover and there were two Somali guards, one in the front, one in the rear, both of them with submachine guns. One with an AK-47, one with an M-16. One pointed out the front, one pointed out the rear, and they were there as hired protection. They took us to the compound, and it was just, again, surreal. In fact, so unreal that I went to sleep sort of forgetting about it, but woke up to the sound of Black Hawk helicopters, which started coming in every 30 minutes with their scopes and guns pointed down at us. And it was such an odd sensation to wake up in a war, especially for somebody who is not a trained soldier. It was just this frightening, uneasy feeling. That is what it's like, to some degree, for every Christian realizing the spiritual battle we face. We come to Christ. We're all excited. We experience a sense of love and joy and purpose. And the counselors in the prayer room give us a hug. And our relatives say, congratulations, you're my brother, my sister, etc., etc. And there's like this protective bubble around us the first few weeks of being a Christian. And then the bubble breaks. It pops. We start feeling not only back to normal sort of after a while, we start feeling even worse sometimes. And it's as if we realize there's a battle going on for our soul. We've awakened in the midst of a battle. And we don't like the notion. <laughs> We're quite opposed to it, in fact. What do you mean, I'm in a battle? Why didn't you tell me this at first? How come I never knew I was in a battle months before I came to Christ? Answer, of course, is you were on the devil's side. Really wasn't a battle. You were held hostage. Now you've defected, and he's really mad. And you find yourself in the midst of this cosmic battle. You remember Joshua, who led the children of Israel into the promised land, land of inheritance, land of new experiences, their inheritance that God gave to them. Yet they discovered that after crossing over the Jordan into the new land, into the inheritance, the first thing they face is they woke up to a battle, the battle of Jericho. They thought, now wait a minute, this is like the promised land. 
This doesn't look very good. We've been for a whole bunch of years in the wilderness. That wasn't a picnic either. But a war? That's the first thing we face as we get into the land? Now, tonight we're going to discover that because the chapter has already opened but continues by saying, I say then, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, or wars, literally, and the Spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You're in a war. Some of you think, I don't like that. I hate to fight. I'm a pacifist. You know what? Too late. Too late. You're already there. You're already there. Now you have to learn what the battle is all about, who's involved, and how to win it. That's what we must learn. You know, it's sort of like the sentiment that's going on now. People are saying, well, we don't want to go to war. We're already in one. On September 11th of 2001, war was declared. We were attacked first. It's just a matter of, will you wake up and understand the war has already begun? It's begun a long time ago and will continue. That ideology will continue. So you can roll over and play dead and protest and say, I want it all to go away. Or you can say, okay, tell me about this battle. Tell me what I must do. and Tell me how I can win. Because that is the objective, especially in this battle of the flesh and the spirit. Now we're introduced to a phrase that becomes not only the key phrase to the passage, but the key element in spiritual victory, which we're going to come back to. We're going to end as we begin tonight. It says, walk in the spirit. Walk in the spirit. And just as a preliminary, I want to talk about that just for a moment. Because I want you to get it in your mind, first of all, what walking in the Spirit is not all about. What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? Well, first of all, to walk in the Spirit doesn't mean you have to act quirky. Oh, you've met them. I know you have. I meet them all the time. Those that think spirituality, walking in the Spirit, is to act unearthly surreal. And you can see it in the way they carry themselves or talk. I see this on Christian television sometimes even, but I see it just on a pastoral level. If you hold your head a certain way and talk a certain way, and then you're walking in the Spirit. Like the guy who insisted that God told him that I needed to talk to him. So I politely sat down on the steps with him. I said, okay, um, what is it you'd like to talk about? He goes, I don't know. <laughs> okay, if you don't know, but God told you to talk to me, wh why didn't God just tell you what it was about? I don't know. <laughs> and I said, well, brother, I don't know either. And I do know that I can't sit here all day. And I do know there's a long line of people that would love to be prayed for or ministered to or talked to. He goes, you're not obeying the Lord now. So what do you mean? He goes, you have to wait here because I'm going to ask God and he's going to reveal to me. He told me that as I sit here and as I listen, the Holy Spirit would speak to me. Because I'm walking in the Spirit. And I tried to be polite, but finally had to say, if that's what you call walking in the Spirit, no wonder a lot of people don't want to. If that's what it is, that's not what it is. That's goofiness. <laughs> Number two, walking in the Spirit is not perfection. And I hope that takes a load off your heart. I hope you don't think that to walk in the Spirit means you'll never fail God, you'll never fall down spiritually, you'll never again yell at your kids, you'll never again get a traffic ticket. Praise God. 
It doesn't mean perfection. You will fall, you will fail, but rather, that's what it's not. What it is is a lifestyle. It's a manner of life whereby the spirit is more in control than the flesh. That's the short answer to what it means. And that's the directive we're giving right here at the very beginning. I know you've all seen it in Christian bookstores or on little postcards or greeting cards, this little poem called Footprints. And we love it because of a truth that it, that it bears. There's a set of footprints, then two sets of footprints, then one set of footprints, and it's where the Lord comes in and the one set of footprints, the guy says, Lord, where were you all, the, all that time I thought you were with me? And Jesus basically said, those were my footprints, hello, I was carrying you. And it's wonderful to know that even though we're called to walk in the Spirit, we sometimes fail and fall, and Jesus is there to pick us up. That's a wonderful truth. Well, the theme. Don't forget the theme, because understanding the theme will keep our minds in the, the spirit in which this was written and the context. The theme is Christian liberty. And we discovered that he doesn't mean by that that you're free to do anything you feel like anytime you feel like it. It's not like you can say, I am free in Christ. I'll live as I want. I'm not under the law, so I can live like I want to live. However, I feel I should live before God. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Well, you could test that. Go out and speed and get pulled over by a police officer and tell the police officer as he's about to say, you broke the law, I'm writing you a ticket. But officer, don't you know I'm not under the law? <laughs> well, in two weeks you'll discover you are as you pay this fine or appear before the judge. No, the law he was speaking about was a law of Moses, a set of rules and regulations whereby one would approach God to become righteous. To become righteous. I.e. Judaism. You don't have to go the way of the law of Moses, i.e. Judaism, to get right with God. You're free in Christ. Christ fulfilled the law because he's the only one that lived the perfect life we could never live. He's the only one that died for all of the failure to keep the law that we have committed. So because of that, because of a relationship with Christ, we're not under the law. However, with that instruction, and we've already covered it in depth, with that instruction comes some warning. Warning number one is that people in their liberty may relapse back into bondage. That's what chapter 5, verse 1 is all about. And this is going to be a very quick introduction, but look at it. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. It is possible for those leaving a system of religion... Now in this place of absolute freedom by faith in Christ and being led by the Spirit, to look back and say, oh, but that system of religion made me feel so comfortable because I woke up and went to bed every day with parameters. Thou shalt, thou shalt not, thou shalt. So every time I did it, I felt good. Every time I didn't do it, I felt bad. And that provided for me a fence of protection. I just feel good when somebody tells me what to do and what not to do. Spiritually. I like it when somebody imposes guilt on me and then pats me on the back and said, oh, you're closer to God today because you've done this or that. So some may relapse back into bondage. Warning number two found in verse 13 of the same chapter isn't relapse from liberty, but reinterpretation of that liberty. And reinterpreting that as I can do anything I want to do. In other words, it's not liberty now, it's license. To act any way I please. Verse 13. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use that liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, as but through love serve one another. And so here's the question, and Paul will answer it. The question is this. Okay, if you're telling people 
they're free in Christ from the legal ramifications of the system of Moses, the Mosaic Law. And the Mosaic Law was written to restrain the passions and the propensities of the old evil nature. If you remove the law, Paul, how are you ever going to subdue the old nature? However, are you going to keep that in check? Answer, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit living in you, prompting you, restraining you, speaking to you, training you to hear his voice, giving you the power to do what you can't do on your own. And so there's two realms, the flesh and the spirit. We'll discover what the flesh is. We'll discover and experience, hopefully, by God's grace, what it is to live in the spirit. So this is how I divide these last verses of chapter 5, this final paragraph. We are waging war with sin. It's a given. You can't get out of it. It's inevitable. You can say, but I don't like to fight. Tough. Toast, you're in the battle. You're in the army now. Learn your weapons. Learn the strategies of the enemy. Learn your weaknesses and learn who your commanding officer is. So that's the first part of it. We are waging war against sin. Second part of it, you can be winning the war with sin. We are waging the war, that's a given, but the potentiality, the possibility is you can be winning it. You are waging it, you can be winning it. One is a given, the other is not. It's a possibility, though, and we'll see how. Let's just get into the uh, text and look at it and see what this battle is all about. I say then, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust or the desires or that strong pull and urge of the flesh. For the flesh lusts is in my translation, or wars is another translation, against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, oh, oh, what a great word after that list. It's like, oh, good, he's changing into a whole different theme. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. Those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the, in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The question is, we have to define terms here. Okay, we know we're in a battle, and we know that the chief proponents, the chief protagonist or protagonist antagonist is the flesh and the spirit. But the question arises, what is the flesh? What is my flesh? When the Bible uses the term flesh, and by the way, it does so many times, the word is sarks. And when we hear the term flesh... In our generation, we think of skin, epidermal layers, muscles. And there's a lot of flesh in modern films and television. And so we think, oh, it must be literally the flesh. It is not literally the flesh, though it has something to do with it. It's not skin, it's not epidermal layers, it's not muscle, it's not this, 
The word sarx or flesh is sometimes translated the old nature. The old nature. It's the nature you were born with. The nature you were born with. And by the way, the nature you were born with was not good. I had somebody talking to me the other night about children developing, child development. He says, I, I do this with every class. I said, has anybody here ever lied? Raise your hand. And every kid in the class will raise their hand. And he'll get one of them and say, now who taught you to lie? And they'll say, well, nobody, nobody like sat me down and instructed me on how to do it. But we become really good at it. It's natural. It's the natural man. It comes with the territory. We're born in sin. David said, I was conceived in iniquity, brought forth in sin. I came forth from my mother's womb speaking lies. So the flesh, the old nature, is everything you are by natural birth. Paul talked about our redemption in Ephesians chapter 2. He said, at one time you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that spirit realm who is active in the children of disobedience. He says, we were all by nature the children of God's wrath. So we are by nature. By nature, you don't love God. By nature, you don't want to read your Bible. By nature, you don't care about spiritual truth, real spiritual truth. What you are by the physical birth is in conflict with who you have become by a spiritual birth. You must be born again, Jesus said. And as soon as you are born again, something happens. Not just an emotion, not just an altar call, not just some counselors coming along you giving you a Bible, but something happens. A new nature is birthed within you. Second Peter chapter 1, the first few verses, that we have this new nature, this spiritual nature of God birthed within us. They don't like each other. In fact, they hate each other. Well, look at the list. Look what they produce. It is so opposite one of the other. There's no way on earth they could get along because they're working toward different goals, aren't they? The flesh is working toward personal gratification. The spirit is working toward spiritual glorification. One is to gratify you, one is to glorify him. And so, do you ever wonder, why am I so selfish? It's who you are by nature. Why do I yell at my kids? It's who you are by nature. Why do I feel such animosity by that guy who just cut me off on the road? It's who I am, you are, we are by nature. It's part of the package deal. That's the flesh. And the flesh, he says, wars against the spirit. Something about this battle you should know if you already don't. If you don't, I want to inform you. If you do, I want to settle it more firmly. This is a uniquely Christian battle. It's a uniquely Christian battle. This is only something Christians go through. Now, as you think about what I just said, no doubt you're going to go, now wait a minute. I don't know if I believe that because I do know unbelievers, moral people, who struggle in certain areas of their life against morality and immorality. And I'm not denying a moral battle is being fought on a number of fronts by lots of unbelieving, nice unbelieving people, well-meaning unbelieving people. I'm not denying that at all. However, it's a sliding scale. It's not a consistent battle. You see, depending on how you've been programmed by your parents, by church, by your education, by what era you grew up in, and you have developed a value system, depending on that kind of programming, you will deal with situations differently one from another. Some person may have grown up in a home that is very permissive. Mom and dad smoke marijuana. They don't mind smoking. It's no big deal. They're never guilty. But they may be guilty 
pulling out a knife on somebody. I said, oh, I could, oh, I just, you know, I cut that guy and I feel really bad. Well, you should. Do you feel bad about the drug? No. But somebody else whose parents didn't do that, they weren't raised in that environment, would feel guilty on both accounts. However, the Christian battle is different because there's the old nature, the propensities toward the flesh, self-gratification, evil, and now this whole new realm, this whole new side of you, this side of you that loves God, loves goodness, wants to please God, wants to serve God, and you have that nature. And only the Christian does, therefore only the Christian has the fierceness of the battle that we're speaking about here. The flesh warring against the spirit. Now, do you understand something? The problem is on the inside, not the outside. So let's stop blaming the outside. Let's stop saying, the devil made me do it. The devil didn't have to make you do it. You were pre-programmed to do it. Or, well, you know, society is just so bad. As I look around the world, things are so bad. Look what everybody's doing. There's so much pressure. Yes, granted, there is a devil, and granted, there is the pressure of society. But the fierceness of the battle is inside of you. It's an inside job. It's an inside problem. The author, Victor Hugo, some of you have heard of him and read him, wrote a little piece called 93, and it's featuring a ship going through a storm. The waves look like they're going to topple the ship, but they're navigating through this fierce storm. They're doing pretty well. But they hear this loud, boom, boom, banging, barraging, thud. It's downstairs. What has happened is one of the cannons that was fixed to the deck in the lower deck has become loose. And with every bounce of the wave, the cannon is smashing against the wall of the hull of the boat. And they realize, unless we secure this cannon, the cannon from the inside is going to put a hole to the outside and we're going to sink. And they realize that the loose cannon inside the ship is more of a problem than all of the wind and all of the waves outside the ship. All of them are a factor, but the real problem is something going on inside. That answers lots of questions. Why do I always get mad? Why do I gravitate toward dirty pictures? Why do I not want to resolve a conflict with somebody who has a grudge against me? Or why do I hold a grudge? Something in the inside, the old nature warring against the new nature. Now, there is a list here. By the way, you notice something about the old nature, the new nature, the flesh, and the spirit. The spirit, by the way, in this chapter, in this context, isn't your spirit as much as the Holy Spirit. It's capitalized. Do you notice that? Because in its context and linguistically, it's referring to the Holy Spirit. The flesh, your old nature battles against the new nature, and part of the new nature is the Holy Spirit lives in you now. And it's the Holy Spirit who wants to lead you and guide you, prompt you, direct you, give you a new set of values, godly values, and he uses the word to do it. So in that battle, keep in mind, you can be resisting and fighting and battling against the Holy Spirit who's trying to lead you and direct you and purify you. Both of these natures... The old nature, the new nature. Both of them are powerful. Both of them are powerful. Your old nature. All of those desires that come with your package. And some of them are stronger in, in you than others. And some of you don't have a problem with what other people have a problem with. But I'll guarantee you this. I'll guarantee you this. Every one of you here tonight has a problem. Of some kind. Is there not some area in your life that you struggle with? Is there not some area of sinfulness that is that Achilles heel? Always keeps coming back to haunt you. It may differ from one to another, but we all experience it, don't we? So it's powerful. Both of them are powerful. 
Both of them are problematic. Now, your flesh was never a problem before, right? <laughs> before you came to Christ, you had no problem with the flesh. You gave into it. You were on the wrong side. You were surrendered, in a sense, to the devil. You were taken captive. And let's just say we could take away the old nature and just destroy it, get rid of it. And all there was was this new nature. You're born again, and there wouldn't be a problem. The problem is they're both together. When you get the new nature, the old one's still there. It doesn't, like, go away unless, unless you do something. And I'm going to tell you exactly what to do because the text tells us what to do. You feed one and you starve the other. And whichever one you feed is the one that will eventually gain uppermost authority, won't it? Both are powerful. Both are problematic because they're together. Both are productive. They produce something. Like a tree would produce fruit. Like a factory would have bunches of workers producing something. So it is with the flesh. And he, he gives a pretty ugly list. Uh, verse 17 and 18. Verse 19 is where he really begins the list. And uh, he talks about the works of the old nature. <laughs> so next time you think, I'm not so bad. I may not be a Christian, but I'm not so bad. Oh, really? Here's your photograph. <laughs> I don't need to read them again. Look at it yourself and be convicted. That's who you and I are by nature. It's a pretty ugly list. And yet, and yet there are some things we look at on this list and go, well, that's pretty harmless. Okay, selfish ambitions, I mean, that's not good, but that's not like murder. That's not like idolatry. And you could look at a few things that you might think are pretty tame, but I want you to know God sees them all together. It's all the same to him. Flesh is flesh. He didn't go, well, that's nice flesh, and that's evil flesh. It's flesh, and it's a war with his spirit. I think it's time, don't you, that we look at ourselves the way God sees it. We call a sin a sin so that it can be forgiven and dealt with and cleansed and gain victory over. So that's the list. I would divide the list into three categories. Sensual sins, which are idolat uh, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, licentiousness. These are the sensual sins. That sounds like American television. The next, I would say, are the spiritual sins. Notice them. Idolatry, sorcery. And then the next classification of the works of the flesh are social sins, the things that destroy relationships, the reasons we don't get along, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath. That's temper. Selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelries. And then he just has a, a, a summary statement, and the like. And in other words, just in case I left something out, things that are related to this. I don't want to go heavily through the list, but notice those sensual sins, adultery. Adultery is sexual sin between or for somebody who is married. Is that a problem in our culture? Well, 62%, according to the day America told the truth, a poll that was done of American adults, 62% of those in America currently having an affair, 62% felt that there was nothing morally wrong with the affair they were currently having. You go, I can't believe it. Look at the world we live in. Oh, but what about the church we live in? According to Time Magazine, 31% of very religious American adults were having or have had affairs. So my friend, where's the difference? 
and my friend, shouldn't there be a difference? These are the works of the flesh, adultery. Then comes fornication. Porneia is the Greek word. Illicit sex between unmarried people living together before marriage. Enjoying the benefits of marriage, the fringe benefits of marriage, without the commitment of marriage. But the word in the New Testament sense, porneia, can mean any illicit sexual relationship that is intercourse. That's, it's a very broad term. And it's not even confined to the very act because, at least the list isn't, because it says after fornication, uncleanness and licentiousness. In other words, it begins in the thought, doesn't it? The heart. The heart is the soil by which the seeds of uncleanness can grow. Now, you know, let's just talk about this before we move on. In the Old Testament, there was a deterrent. What was the punishment for adultery in the Old Testament? Death by stoning. I'm sure it was a problem back then, but I just can't believe it's quite the same problem that it is today. I mean, imagine if we, as a society, were to impose that law today. You would drive down the freeway and literally see piles of stones, wouldn't you? It'd be everywhere. The landscape would be changed. It would, it would truly be xeriscaped everywhere. <laughs> then notice on the list the spiritual sins. Idolatry, sorcery. Idolatry was the worldview of the ancient world. Rome, Ephesus, Greece... And we know that idolatry is simply a replacement. Anything that replaces God in your life, Jesus in your life, is number one, is idolatry, basically. Now, why would the flesh be interested in idolatry? Simply because your flesh, your old nature, hates the narrow way. Tries to broaden out the way. Well, there are many roads to God. Well, why can't I believe that and be sincere and do that? The flesh hates the message of the cross. It's too narrow. It's too confining. And so, I'm going to make it up as I go along. I'm going to be spiritual generically, Heinz 57-ly, and be able to say at the end of life, I did it my way, only to stand in judgment before God for it. But idolatry is putting anything in the place of God who deserves first place. Then there is sorcery. And if you know the Greek, it's pharmakia, or pharmaceuticals, or pharmacy. That's where we get the term from, pharmakia. It's a word that meant sorceries, but it in included the use of drugs during pagan worship because, because the pagans believed that drugs was a way to get them in touch with God. And they would interpret the hallucinations that they would have as God speaking to them. So it could be literally druggings. Included in sorcery then is the illegal use of drugs for pleasure or for an altered state of consciousness. Work of the flesh. Then the social sins, the relational ones. Boy, what a, what a relational sewage these are. Look at them. Hatred, it begins. That's the first attitude that, that spawns all the rest. Hatred contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder. Outbursts of wrath, I mentioned, is, is temper. Everybody has a hot button. Every one of us has an area where if somebody says something or does something, we could easily, if we're not spirit controlled, fly off the handle, right? Some of us, it's driving. I'm not going to say whom, but for some of us, it's just a real, delicate area. The 
little boy came home one day and said, Mom, she just drove him home. It was a very peaceful drive. She said, Mom, driving home with you is a lot different than driving home with Dad this morning. It's a very different experience. Well, how so? Well, Mom, what really is interesting is when I was with you, I didn't see one idiot. <laughs> with Dad, we saw five. <laughs> Temper. I, I've heard the excuses, by the way. Oh, it's just that I'm temperamental. I'm Italian. <laughs> or, I'm temperamental. I'm Irish. Or, I'm temperamental. I'm German. You can, you could say that about any one of us. Okay, it's temperamental. Right? 90% temper, 10% mental. <laughs> You're just not thinking correctly. But now, let's sober up a bit as we bring this to a conclusion, because I do want to end with a good part. This is the nasty stuff. <laughs> I've told you before, I tell you in times past, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We don't like that verse. It may not even be underlined in your Bible just because it's so powerful. Because, frankly, you look at that, and honestly, you would have to say, well, which one of us hasn't done that or the other at some time, right? Have we all not been guilty of something in that list? Shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Ah, but there's a key word there. What is it? Practice. Practice. It's not the occasional falling into sin. It's the perpetual practicing of that sin. It's those who practice it will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's not the action as much as the habit it's addressing, which brings up another scripture. You could turn to it. You don't have to, because I've already turned to it. It's in 1 John chapter 3. Let me read it to you. Verse 8. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. And that verse has troubled some of you as much as the one I just read. But its meaning is the same. Whoever, pract whoever is a born of God does not continually, habitually practice as a lifestyle the sin. Does a Christian sin? Yes. Does a Christian fall into sin? Yes. Does a Christian sometimes habitually fall into sin? It, it, it can happen. Does a Christian sometimes deliberately fall into sin? It's been known to happen. But the reaction won't be, who cares, so what? I'll do it again. The reaction will be a Psalm 51 reaction. Cleanse me, purge me, forgive me, change me. I hate it. I don't want to do it. Like Paul said in Romans 7, that battle. Do you see the difference? The Christian is one to whom sin clings. The unbeliever is the one who clings to sin. That's right. The unbeliever is the Klingon. <laughs> Holding on, seeing it, grabbing a hold of, not, not, not willing to change, not willing to turn, not willing to do anything but, so what, I do whatever I want to do. I raised my hand once, though, and I... I do own a Bible and I do go to church and my grandmother is a Christian. And, but I'm going to cling to this sin. Cling on. Those who practice such things will never inherit the kingdom of God. Now quickly, look at, look, look at the list continued in Corinthians. But, whew, thank you Paul. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. We've done two weeks just on these words in this list, this ninefold gracious cluster, so we won't go through it all in depth. The fruit of the Spirit, love, you know what that is? Joy, peace, long-suffering, you know what that is? In, an, in a relational, emotional sense, it's letting your motor idle a long time before stripping the gears. You know what I mean by that? You won't lash out immediately, you'll just 
Let it simmer, let it run, don't just cruise-o-matic. Long suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Notice this. Against such there is no law. Mark that well. What's the purpose of the law? To curb, to restrain, to withhold a person from doing this. It was put in place to tether the old nature. Well, if you're by the Spirit practicing these things, you don't need a restraint, right? That's the freedom. That's what the freedom in Christ produces. In a relationship, it produces this. And those who are Christ, by the way, I have to say this. This is what the Christian life produces. This is what becoming a Christian will do for you. It'll make you spiritually balanced. It'll make you relationally balanced. It'll make you personally balanced because all these graces, this ninefold cluster of graces of the Spirit deal with your spiritual relationship Godward, your, your uh, relations with other people manward, and your, your personal um, situation selfward. It makes you a balanced individual. Now, I've heard people say, he's so heavenly-minded, he's no earthly good. But if you exhibit the true fruit of the Spirit because you are heavenly-minded, that's why you are earthly good. It makes you a better citizen, a better person, a better husband, a better wife, a better father, a better child, because you're walking in the Spirit, exhibiting these graces. C.S. Lewis once said, only those, those who do the most for this world are those who think the most of the next. It's true. Heaven isn't just a destination, it's a motivation. It's a motivation. Okay, I'm going to heaven. Done deal. I have a relationship with God. Done deal. Now I'm motivated to please him and to bring as many others as I can into the kingdom. So it is a motivation. And I just lost my place. But that is what I do sometimes. Okay, back to... I can find it. I'm a Christian. Okay. We are closing. We are closing with this thought. We have seen waging the war. It's quick. It's easy. At least theoretically. But not practically. Here it is winning the war with sin. You ready? And those, verse 24, who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. You win the war by walking. You win by walking. You want to win the war? You win by walking. First of all, you walk away from the flesh. That's crucifying it. You walk with or in the Spirit. Crucify is a very graphic picture of self-denial, repudiation, uh, turning your back on evil. It's what Jesus said. Whoever will follow me must deny himself, take up his cross daily. Crucifixion is painful. When you say no to the flesh, when you say, I'm not going to do that, it's painful. It hurts. You want to do it. Your flesh isn't gratified. It's going, what about me? What about now? And crucifixion, though it's death, it's slow. It doesn't happen immediately. It's slow, excruciating pain. But the idea is to look at that propensity that you're going after and the Holy Spirit's living inside of you gently saying, that's wrong. You know it. I've given you an inner witness. I want to lead you away from that. So don't pull that off the cross. You've crucified that on the cross. You did it positionally. Now do it practically, personally. Don't fondle the sin and say, oh, you're such a nice little sin. Can I just take you off the cross for one day? <laughs> you cannot negotiate with the flesh. You can't say, I'm going to do it in increments. The only road to victory is absolute starvation. It's absolute starvation. The flesh must die. Must be crucified. Well, I am crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. That's right. That's what he's done for you positionally. But here you are to do it practically. Then, after walking away, you walk with. You walk in the Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit's there to lead you. Verse 16, walk in the Spirit. Notice, and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Did you get that? There's the, there's the key to victory right there. Walk in the Spirit. You will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Let me rephrase that. If you proactively, if you proactively live for God, you won't have to reactively keep taking back those areas from the devil. If you are consumed with, how can I please God right now, today? Who can I share the gospel with? What can I pray for? What spiritual exercises and disciplines could I be involved in now, tonight, after church, during the weekend? If your preoccupation becomes spirituality, there's not a whole lot of time left over because you are proactively living for God. You won't have to reactively keep taking back those areas from the devil. Every year I grow weeds. I do. And I'm good. And you know how I grow weeds? You want to know my secret? I don't do anything. I don't do anything. They come naturally. As long as I don't do anything, as long as I don't pull them out, as long as I don't fertilize the flowers, the weeds will grow on their own. I don't have to nurture them. Don't have to plan for it. They'll just do it. Flowers aren't that easy. It takes water, love, fertilizer, nurture. Your old nature, like the weeds. Your new nature, like the flowers. If you just hang out and whatever, whatever goes, goes, your flesh will control you. It'll grow like a weed. It's part of who you are. But the new nature must be tended, nurtured, watered, fertilized with the word, with prayer, with fellowship. It must be for it to grow and thrive. And whichever one you feed or pay attention to is the one that will take over. If you feed the spirit, it will take dominance over the flesh. If you let the flesh go, believe me, in this culture, it'll just feed itself. You're exposed to it daily. It will eventually take over, and the struggle becomes worse. 